center.net, all spelled out, or 589-3063. I'm Fritz Homans, and meet me every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 4 at the Blues Station. We'll be departing on track 145 for a new destination every week, where we'll journey across the country in search of the best toe-tapping blues music around that's guaranteed to make your soul sing. The Blues Station, every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 4, here on WERU 89.9 FM and streaming live at WERU.org. Blues to make you feel good. All aboard for the Blues Station. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Mabel Wadsworth Center, providing comprehensive sexual and reproductive health services to people in northern and eastern Maine since 1984. Insurance, Maine care, self-pay accepted, and reduced fees for uninsured clients. MabelWadsworth.org. We have about 20 seconds before 10 o'clock comes our way. Let's take a quick look at the weather while we're waiting. Light snow, fog, and mist right now. 33 degrees outside in East Orland here. Um, and it's going to be partly cloudy tonight. Uh, we're going to have a high of 45 today with a low of 28 tonight. Mostly sunny tomorrow, 41, low of 19. Stay tuned for Healthy Options with your host, Rhonda Feynman. Morning. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and on Healthy Options today, we'll be discussing the disease of chronic addiction with two staff members from Wellspring Incorporated. That's a 50-year-old organization in Bangor, Maine, which provides substance use treatment and mental health services for adults. Suzanne Farley is the executive director for Wellspring, and for more than 20 years, first in New Mexico and now in Maine, she's worked on behalf of individuals and families in many areas of human services. While in New Mexico, she worked to provide early childhood education, case management, and family support services for children and families experiencing homelessness. She also helped to develop a shelter for the city of Albuquerque, which included services and housing and opportunities for employment. Suzanne Farley moved to Maine to lead the Born Learning Initiative at the United Way of Eastern Maine and was a volunteer coordinator at the Restorative Justice Project in Belfast before becoming the executive director of Wellspring. So glad you'll uh, be with us here on Suzanne, uh, uh, on Healthy Options, Suzanne. But we also are, are pleased to um, introduce our other guest, Lisa Williams, who has served for the past four years as the program director of the Women's House at Wellspring. She has a bachelor's degree in mental health and human services and is a licensed alcohol and drug counselor and a certified clinical counselor. Prior to that, she was an active clinician, program manager at Discovery House, a methadone and suboxone clinic, which provides medication and counseling services. She also describes herself as a woman in long-term recovery who believes that within everyone afflicted with a substance use disorder, there's an ability to recover. I would like to welcome both uh, Suzanne Farley and Lisa uh, Williams here to Healthy Options today. Good Thank morning, you, Rhonda. Everybody's here. That's fantastic. Yeah. So great. Well, let's start um, for those people who are not familiar with Wellspring. Uh, Suzanne, let's start with you. Maybe as the executive director, you could give us a little bit of a, a quick overview of uh, what kind of services and what, what this organization is really about and what, we're, what you're yeah. doing up there in Bangor. Sure, sure. Well, our program, uh, as you mentioned, has been in existence for more than 50 years. We're the oldest agency in the state of Maine that has been providing treatment for individuals with substance use disorder. We started uh, with one house uh, providing uh, alcohol, um, treatment for alcoholism for men way back in the 60s, and over time evolved by adding the women's house. And both of those beds, uh, or both of those houses actually provide uh, services for uh, men and women at each house. We have 15 beds in each house, and folks generally come in and provide, are there for four to six months at a time. We also have outpatient services. Uh, we have individual outpatient mental health services. And we're co-occurring capable agency, which means that we can treat folks who have the co-occurring um, 
issues with both the substance abuse and mental health treatment. We find that those typically go hand in hand. We offer intensive outpatient treatment, which is um, when folks come in and join others in a group for treatment services for substance use disorder. We have a transitional housing program. We have another residential program that also provides services for mothers with their children. They can bring their kids with them, and that's a really, really big deal for us because it's taking one step further to eliminating stigma, uh, which can be a huge problem for women, particularly mothers who are suffering from addiction. And uh, what else are we doing? We also have a detox center that we opened up a year ago, and uh, we would like to get the word out about that. We serve at all of those programs except for the IOP program and the outpatient program. Folks from all over the state come to us. Um, the outpatient treatment services, since they're individualized and group-oriented group on a daily basis, really serve um, folks from the greater Bangor area in priority. So. Very comprehensive, and and Lisa, you're you're really working as a program director. You're really on the on the uh, in the in the trenches with direct one-on-one uh, services. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you're what you're offering at, uh, at you know and what goes on at, at some of the the work that you're doing. Certainly, uh, it's such a privilege to be a part of somebody's journey when they try to get their life back from where substance use disorder takes them. Um, We're there from the day, the the first hour that they come in, trying to congratulate them on starting this journey. Um, There's so much that happens. We have a comprehensive staff that goes through all of their belongings, gets releases signed, um, gets them connected with a buddy, introduces them to their primary counselor, gives them a tour of the facility. It can be incredibly nerve-wracking to all of a sudden. Right, there they are, and they're going to be cohabitating with 14 other residents, um, and that would be daunting for anyone. No question. Um. But it is uh, a beautiful thing to watch as people really try, even through the struggles. And it is, you know, as you can imagine, um, I often say that it's the, the most work that goes on is between the groups that we provide. Because there are Monday through Friday, we have treatment groups twice a day. But it's a lot of the routine and the structure and the emotion regulation that they learn in the course of a day. Emotion regulation, what is that? Well, that is often uh, so much about recovery from addiction is about behaviors. You know, the disease concept is so often we see people, that, you know, their their mind will say, I'll show you, I'll hurt me. And when they get angry, when they get frustrated, when they get scared, when they get most any emotion, it's so ingrained to just say, I can't do this. I'm going to go back to whatever substance they were using. So learning how to come behind a closed door, talk to somebody, to breathe through the fact that they're frustrated with their roommate or they just got some disappointing news from a caseworker or whatever, as big or as little as it is, to learn how to come in and ask for a little help and, you know, catch their breath and walk out. You know, whatever the situation is doesn't change, but their ability to manage it does. So yeah, so you're really you're working on on so many levels uh, when when someone is is uh, is coming in. I, are, now, Suzanne, uh, I, or either Lisa Williams or Suzanne Farley, uh, who who would uh, whoever wants to or add pieces to this uh, the question. How how do people get to you? How how does one become part of Wellspring, and what does that entail? So um, I'll pass this off to Lisa in just a sec, but referrals come from all over the state, um, especially for those folks who may have um, private insurance or they have main care, or we also have grants uh, from the state to provide services for folks who have no other means to pay. Um, And so the state will often refer folks. Word of mouth will refer folks. And Lisa can probably speak to it in even more greater detail. So, Lisa, why don't you pick it up from there? Certainly, yes. Um, And we really collaborate with um, a lot of the jails as well. We get a lot of people that um, come in 
through there and the typically they would for the residential services they would fill out an application we would receive the application and then they would connect with our administrative assistant who would set up a screening they can either do that in person if they're local or they can do that over the phone and they would talk with a substance abuse clinician who goes over that application in detail to make sure that they would meet criteria for our level of care. If they do meet criteria, then they typically are placed on a wait list, and then they are asked to check in on a regular basis to let us know that they are still, in fact, interested in treatment until we have a bed become available. So, so you're... You know, so to get to a residential, this is not necessarily acute care at that moment. Um, Lisa Williams or, or Suzanne, what, what, what's happening in, on the local level as well? You say you have an outpatient and the uh, and now detox. the new detox. How how does yeah. that integrate? Do, do do they do people go from one program to another, or how how does that yeah. all work? Yeah, so we're always looking at the continuum of care and trying to determine where specific gaps or care are. And so when people do a level of a care assessment, that helps determine what, what their needs are. And so they get referred to the best option. For some folks, they may be experiencing um, opiate, opiate uh, withdrawal, and they may be interested in Medicaid-assisted treatment. So when they come in with withdrawal symptoms to our detox program, for example, we're going to try and hook them up with a, provi- a primary care provider as soon as possible and get them on on a prescription so that when they they finish going through the withdrawal symptoms and they're ready to, to leave the detox center, we can hook them right up with either the next level of care, depending on what they need, but certainly with Medicaid-assisted treatment. And that usually includes getting them on uh, medication as well as hooking them in with uh, counseling sessions so that they're getting both ends met. So what are we using now? Is it, is it well, we've heard of methadone clinics mm-hmm. in the past. Is that still a, a drug of choice or are there uh, other, other ways? Lisa, you want to keep Sure. I, mm-hmm. I do think we, we do still see some methadone, but we definitely see a lot more um, suboxone. Yeah. Nowadays, um, I think that that seems to be, um, it's a little more accessible. Uh, it, um, people often refer to, I, I worked in a clinic, and I know often people felt like it was liquid handcuffs. Oh. Um, so well. the Suboxone allows them a little more freedom once a week, typically. And I would also offer that it is a partial opiate versus a full opiate, like methadone. So right. that is a... a User-friendly, I would say. It certainly feels like it allows people to really, especially in my residential programs, you you get to really try to learn the non-chemical coping skills with the support needed because of the brain effects. Right. I, that's what I wanted to talk about, some of the, the – that when when you're doing alcohol or opiates or any kind of addictive substance, that the brain changes and that we, we have a whole other – level of of treatment that needs to happen when wouldn't you say a neurological aspect absolutely and, and physiological and neurological could speak to that a little bit how, how do you how would one address that in a, in i think in our relapse prevention in the in the groups that we do we often talk about it's such an important piece for the clients to recognize that that's part of what happens i have to say you know the person takes the drug and then the drug takes the drug and then the drug takes the person because that's part of what happens the brain chemistry changes and they lose the power of choice and so that can help reduce the stigma enough so that they can feel like maybe just maybe i can change my life and it instills a little bit more hope in the fact that, you know, with effort and support, they can actually turn their lives around. And you're seeing results. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and Suzanne Farley, as you're going into the world as the executive director, I, tell us your, your role. Are you, how are you coordinating all of this? Are you, what's, what's your piece in, in, in mm-hmm. all of this? Because it's, so, it does take... A whole staff. <laughs> it does take a whole staff. Um, a lot of my work is just really ma- monitoring at the uh, state level what are current policies 
what's going on at the legislature, how do different um, rules and laws impact the work that we do, what risks come up, where do we need to take change, um, out there networking, trying to make sure, for example, our detox center wasn't properly funded initially um, under the LePage administration, and so we worked really hard uh, to ensure that we could not only get the program up and running but sustain it. And so right now, uh, under Ms. Mills' administration, they have committed to supporting detox centers. Um, they have properly funded the center, and uh, we are in the process right now of upgrading from what we were at a license level that was described as a social model detox, which is, is nice, but uh, doesn't require – we were very limited in how many uh, admissions we could take meaning that they had to come through the the emergency room and rather than directly into our center because originally we didn't have the funding to have 24-7 nursing on staff. We'd, we've had medical doctors on staff. And a social model really is more about really just helping people go through the, um, you know, they're not as high a risk as they would be, if, say, if they got admitted to the hospital with alcohol withdrawal, which could be extremely dangerous. Um, in, in fact, people sometimes in fact, die during the withdrawal process for alcohol. So we've had to be really careful about ensuring that the folks that come into the detox center as we're, proper, as we're presently licensed actually are safe enough to be in there. So that's why we've limited it just to alcohol and opiates. But we're in the middle of upgrading to what they call a clinically managed detox center. We'll have nurses on staff 24-7. Um, our doctors will be available on call. We can take uh, a broader range of substances um, rather than just opiates and alcohol. And uh, I think we'll be able to serve the broader northern, northern Maine population much better. Uh, so a lot of my work is trying to get the word out to make sure that referring agencies know Presently, for example, we have a lot of referrals coming in from the Waterville area where they have a Project Hope at the police department where folks can turn themselves into the police department to get help. They send them over to us. So once they go through the detox center, then we're looking to see whether or not they need residential care, outpatient care, and to get them uh, moving on to the next level of care if that's what they need. So I know that there's some legislation, um, I'm as, a, as an acupuncturist, uh, that there is uh, some legislation happening now to include some of that acupuncture okay. uh, de detox kind yeah. of work. Are you guys mm -hmm. working with that as well? Is that? Uh, I think the Barnes monitoring that one, the Bangor Area Recovery Network, but yes. we're certainly keeping an eye on it as right. a favorable definitely a favorable option that we can add to our mix of options for folks absolutely well we'll yeah. get everybody all connected to, mm -hmm. uh, so uh even even <clears throat> less perhaps even less drugs uh lisa williams that would be uh <laughs> absolutely that, that would be so I, you know we certainly you know always support and understand that there is a real time and place where it is effective um but uh, there's also a lot of times where it can be a part of the journey, not the end. Oh, no question. Yes, um, and then what we should we'll do a, a whole show with uh, other people uh, with other other methods as well to uh, to talk about uh, the spectrum of ways to to deal with the nervous system, um, and when it comes to this kind of a, a, a situation now. Su Suzanne and, uh, Farley, who again is dir uh, executive director of Wellspring, as a matter of fact, I'm just going to take a moment to do a little business here because if you just tuned in, uh, this is the Healthy Options program. And I'm Rhonda Feynman, your host, and we are speaking today with Suzanne Farley, Executive Director of Wellspring Incorporated, and Lisa Williams, uh, Program Director there. And the topic is substance abuse and treatment and their work at Wellspring. So um, there is something that you said in, when you sent me information, Suzanne, about the treatment, and we used it in our introduction, of um, chronic disease, the chronic mm -hmm. disease. Uh, can we talk about that sure. language? I don't think, is that yeah. a framing that we're, we're working on now in, in the world of, uh, of treatment and, and uh, assistance? I would say that it's, it's actually great, gained great, a great deal of recognition as a viable way to look at addiction, um, certainly from the – we approach it as a, as a health care need, right? And so, again, coming back to what you talked about earlier about the, the chemicals changing the brain and also thinking about uh, when all that we've learned in the last many years about um, ACEs, for example, adverse childhood experience, 
Um, and we begin to, to understand as the research becomes more and more clear that um, stress, indeed the hormone of stress, can actually alter uh, one's genetic um, genetic makeup and predispose folks to having a greater uh, disposition to uh, addiction, the disease of addiction, and really calling it and recognizing it that it is a disease of the brain. The brain uh, has been, um, you know, has it sometimes has a predisposition for it, sometimes they've been altered by the chemicals, but things have changed in the brain. It's damaged, it needs to be healed. And so we think about addiction as an opportunity to provide that healing treatment for the disease of addiction and recognize that not everyone who uses substances is predisposed I can't speak, <laughs> to uh, becoming, um, you know, to finding themselves with, with the disease of addiction. So a lot of it is around changing language, changing the stigma, trying to break down this idea that folks just need to pull themselves up by their proverbial bootstraps and tough it out and get well. Now, that's not to say that many people don't find their way to healing out of addiction on their own, but many, many, many people really need the support of um, the care the care that Lisa provides and her team provide as well as support for medication, especially when they're dealing with opiates. So I'm interested then in the in the situation where you're having women, uh, mothers, and their children. What this It's a newer program, and mm-hmm. I would imagine, or maybe you could speak to this, Lisa Williams, uh, a little bit more or... or both of you, about how, if we, when we talk about ACEs, and by the way, there's, uh, in, in the archives, um, I, there is a program directly talking about ACEs and, and, and treatment. Um, on That'll be one of the links we'll put when we get this up on the website, because uh, I think that'll be really interesting to, these things dovetail so beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, <clears throat> so, let's talk, if you want to talk about intervening in, in a generational uh, ACEs situation, let's say, um, how, do, how are you seeing that change when you have children uh, with their zero to five, I believe, like newborns to five years old? Um, I would imagine that you're changing their lives uh, as well as their mothers. I think so. Do you want to speak to that, Lisa, or do you want me to jump in? Absolutely. I think um, in the women's program, they don't get to have their children you know, uh, full time, but we certainly always support um, anytime they would like to have like weekend visits, have overnight visits, because we know how detrimental active addiction can be to the children as well as the parents and how crucial for recovery, being able to reconnect the, it is for the parents. Often the, the moms are so riddled with guilt and shame. And it's pivotal to be able to have some time and connection and to heal for both of them and for those little buggers to know, <laughs> you know, that, that mom's trying, you know, that, that yeah. you're here and you can be counted on. There are people, you know, that, you know, sometimes mom's sick and she needs medicine. She yeah. needs some help. And out at our Infinity House, where the moms and the children reside, is a different program. Um, we also have embedded out there an early childhood specialist. And so yeah. she's part of the team, and she's providing wonderful incidental modeling about how to manage uh, stress, about how to redirect and guide the children's behavior. She's providing in the moment uh, real feedback when moms are handling situations really well and gently guiding her when maybe the reaction is um, reactive or overly harsh. Um, So in that way, I feel like, and they're learning so much. They're in child development classes as well as their substance abuse classes. They're beginning to understand how their own history impacts their own parenting style. And they are healing, and, and and the outcomes for the children will only be great. I mean, they have to be, you know. Yeah, you're, because they're, we well, this is very young. They're very young, so they're while well, uh-huh. they've experienced, and they must have, right? Be part uh-huh. of the yeah. of an ACEs situation. Sure. Um, ge- getting uh, the the flexible neuro neuro, neuro circuits uh-huh. <laughs> um, at that age is just so beneficial, and absolutely. So and and what's interesting is you actually talk about um, in in the literature and um, what you're doing as talking about mental health and the substance abuse mm-hmm. mo- uh, interconnection. 
And, well, we know, or some people may know that in, in our prisons, that often people with mental illness end up in prisons or, or kinds of, uh, of substance abuse. And instead of using a punitive model, here we are at a way to, uh, to see this as, uh, as something that can be, uh, that treatment on all these levels can be effective. Um, what, Lisa, maybe you can address this. How, how do you deal with this? How, you know, substance abuse is, is in itself with all that neurological change, such a, a big, a big issue. And then we have mental health issues, some probably genetic, you know, some probably possibly what comes first, right? Absolutely. Uh, um, how, how do you work with that um, in a, a day-to-day setting, you know, not just theoretically, because that's, you're, you're, you are right there doing it. Absolutely. Well, you know, first and foremost, when people come in and they often do with a dual diagnosis, where it's it's incredibly difficult for any mental health medications or supports to really be effective if you're self-medicating with any kind of substances. So the ability to try and maintain some sobriety and learn some non-chemical coping skills and really get into some mental health therapy and some medication management to assess and to reassess sometimes, you know, as, as some healing takes place in the brain and you, and you get more um, coping skills on board, oftentimes people find that they can reduce some of those other meds. Sometimes, sometimes they find out that they do need more medications, you know, because it's just so confusing. We often will, will see... Early recovery would mimic a lot of the DSM, which is what is used to diagnose mental health because they're everywhere. You know, they're yes. anxious, they're depressed, they're, it, they may have some schizoaffective things going on because they are just altered so strongly by the chemicals. Um, so it's so important to just, first and foremost, create a safe space where they can learn how to just not self-medicate, abuse, and then really tease out where where things are effective, where they're needed, where they're not, and always, always with the the support and the hope that you know all people doesn't matter. You know, recovery is all encompassing. It's it's not just a substance. It's, it's right. mind, body, spirit, taking care of the whole person. Yeah. It really is. And the way that the organization supports those efforts that Lisa just described is that we have uh, mental health outpatient counselors here, and we also embed those with um, the over at the houses. So once a week they're attending the case reviews so that they get familiar with uh, uh, who's in the houses and what their needs are. They're meeting the folks, and so when we are ready to refer uh folks back over to the mental health department for additional treatment, it's uh, the success opportunity is greater because they already know who the therapists are. They've built rapport with them early on. They feel safe with them. Um, you know, it's just, it, and then they're also holding groups, too, with the, with, uh, the uh, folks in the residential program. So there's a, a really nice way across the agency that we're touching in that that what Lisa describes as treating the whole person and really making sure that our agency is able to respond to the needs in a holistic way. We're very, very uh, fortunate to have that, uh, the opportunity to have a whole body, whole person uh, view. So I would imagine that when you are dealing with these individuals in the men's houses and the the women's, uh, you are creating individual treatment plans. Is that how that works? Absolutely, uh, absolutely. They would uh, a client would meet with their primary counselor, and within the first three days, they come up with an individual treatment plan, and then that is updated every month. And they meet with their counselor. Of course, residential. I mean, they would have daily groups. They would have weekly set appointments. But often, you know, they're, they're cohabitating. You can have a really effective 10-minute conversation walking through on your way to something because the counselors are right there. Yes. And, and I think that's a beautiful part of what really can be beneficial in a residential program. Right. So people can learn skills just as part of life. Yeah. Right. 
Right, and have that clinical, just a, a five or ten minute conversation, like, oh, remember, remember how on your treatment plan we're talking about, you know, a, a grounding technique. You look around and you tell me five things that are orange, or you, you know, you practice those breathing techniques that we talked about. You know, you, you learn how to come behind a closed door. Or you you take a walk. You know, those things that we we talk about that instead of using a substance, you're going to practice these other because it, it takes action and willingness to do that, but you needed a reminder because the the brain is in loops of just use and spin in the chaos and the pain because it's looking to self-medicate and, and the helpful reminders really make a difference. So you've mentioned some of those treatment, the, the and, and, and I'm reading on your, your uh, Wellspring uh, website, you talk about the sanctuary model of trauma-informed care. Uh, some of the things you mentioned, is that part of it? Maybe you could explain that a little bit more, what that means. Yes. Well, <laughs> go ahead, Lisa. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I, I want to hear from that... everybody. Lisa Williams, <laughs> go for it. Sanctuary is just recognizing that most everyone, staff included, staff and clients have experienced some degree of trauma. And so knowing that language matters, how we deliver the information and the conversations that we have really matter. Um, not asking what's wrong with you, but what's happening is one of the pivotal things that, mm-hmm. that what a difference that just a question yeah. can right. create a, a whole different space. Right. Because, again, there's been in, on healthy options, we've explored the idea of trauma resiliency and, and mm. um, not necessarily from the point of view of, of mental uh, health and, and opioids, but from people who've, at, although I think it's from an ACEs point of view uh, that, that some of the trauma resource and, uh, and adverse childhood experience point of view. Um, so there you are absolutely encompassing that in on on a daily on a daily basis let's talk more about that language piece so what what you were the experience uh the example you gave is uh instead of sort of blaming or putting uh, language that might make someone defensive you're yeah talk about how to learn that how do we how do we know how to do that and well, you know, I, I often, in, in working with newer counselors or staff, I often, you know, if you try and think of presenting difficult information in a way that you would receive it best, and often we don't necessarily, if, if we're not being cognizant, it's easy to just kind of have something pop out and always remembering that, you know, people experience everything through the filter of the life that they've lived, and often with so much trauma, the default is going to be, take it in a shaming, blaming, judgment, judgmental kind of way. So being really cognizant of how we deliver something like, I understand that this might be difficult to hear. I know you might be disappointed to, to precursor before you give. I'd like to, I'd like to have a conversation. You know, do you mind if I speak freely? To just to, it gives a little notice that this might be difficult, that it might not be comfortable. And it creates a little safe space. You know, um, Rhonda, I also wanted to just kind of, you know, add to this and thinking about sanctuary and trauma-informed care. And we thought we think a lot in the organizational level too about parallel process, and that the that the the idea about a trauma-informed organization is not not exclusively about how we're dealing with uh, the folks that come to us for care and treatment, but also how do we work with each other. How how do we as an organization function? And I've often heard the um, the counselors at the houses will say to me, you know, that when when the staff are in alignment, when things are flowing smoothly, that 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 also has an impact on the on the houses. And and mm-hmm. when things are chaotic and confused, like when if we've had staff turnover or something unexpected happen, that that also that energy reverberates through the house. And so. You know, sanctuary reminds us to in, in, engage in those principles of respect across the whole agency, not just exclusively as a therapeutic model, but recognizing instead that everything that we do in the agency needs to be more therapeutic in its in its presentation and in its in the way that we live. We live it. <laughs> so I don't right. know if Lisa can add to that, but I bet she can. <laughs> 
Absolutely. I know um, one of the my, my favorite little tools in the sanctuary toolbox is um, there's this thing called the reenactment or the drama triangle versus the empowerment triangle. Um, and it is just a quick, although, I mean, you can do hour-long groups over it or you could utilize it quickly, but oftentimes people can hit in the reenactment triangle is uh, – you, you are a, a victim, a persecutor, or a rescuer. And in the empowerment triangle, you move that to being a creator, a coach, or a challenger. Looking through the different lens, like, okay, if, I, if I'm coming from a, a more centered, holistic, healthy framework, instead of jumping in and rescuing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask, would you, like, would you like some help? Would you like to hear my thoughts on that, not just offering it and then being surprised when somebody ends up feeling like you're being attacking or judgmental, not the intention whatsoever, but often people just don't know they're existing the way they have the generational things that you had talked about earlier, you know, um, there's layers and layers of not knowing how to have effective, healthy communication, and effective, healthy communication can change your world and the world of those around you. Let's just say that again because that that went by. That's so important. I think, and it went by so quickly. Lisa Williams, <laughs> you just did that so beautifully. <laughs> Going from victim, perse- yes. uh, persecuted, what or victim persecutor and rescuer those are the three elements of the reenactment triangle which growing up in dysfunctional systems often it's right. just natural responses you're either a victim you're a persecutor or you're a rescuer and and often people float quickly sometimes sure. from one to the other right and trying to reframe that as you get healthier and you get more um, healthy coping skills and and you know language Moving that to empowerment triangle, which is more about being a coach, a creator, or a challenger. And I always do a little framework with challenger, meaning, you know, I'm wondering if there's something else we could do about that, not in a, in a confrontational yes. What's way. wrong with you? How come you haven't right, figured this exactly. out yet? Oh, you know. But, so you how know, easy I'm, I could say that? I'm, I'm horrified. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And oh, no. Easy. It is. It's so easy to just go there. It, it is so true. Not working hard enough, really. Uh, the, the society's, right, that image somehow. Absolutely. That this is that those people are separate from us. And I think that gets to what you were talking about, Suzanne mm-hmm. Farley, about it being the whole organization, our whole mm-hmm. society. It's, and so, so using that language, creator, say it again, creator. Challenger or coach. 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 Yeah. So, so you know, I know in in a lot of the trauma work that we've discussed on this program, there there is the idea that one doesn't have to re. You don't even have to tell your story over and over again. It almost sets it in the physiology or in your that altered mind brain functioning. uh, That the the positions. You know, this happened, and he said, and she said, but to actually get to the sensation in the body. Um, is a, another way of, of breaking that cycle. Do you, and you mentioned something earlier, Lisa, about um, Lisa Williams, about uh, about breathing or noticing the grounding, the five orange things. Tell us more about what you were alluding to. Oh, and before that, again, if I, I just want to do a little business because we're having so much fun uh, <laughs> getting into all of these details. If people just tuned in, let, let me tell you where, who, what's going on. I'm Rhonda Feynman. You're listening to Healthy, the Healthy Options Program on Community Radio, WERU. I'm here with Suzanne Farley, Executive Director, and Lisa Williams, Program Director um, of Wellspring and we're speaking about substance use disorders and treatment and, and how to uh, how we can heal from all of that. So yeah. there we go. Yeah. We were, and now we're picking up again with this idea of, of some of the specifics you, that, that Lisa Williams mentioned earlier in the program. About the mind-body connection and yes. what we can do to um, when you – because, you know, when people – are trying to recover from active addiction, you're asking them to give up absolutely everything. And it is so hard 
you know, the people, the places, the things. They always say change your playground and your playmates, but but what do you do? How do you do that? How do you do that? I mean, it really is so much. So learning how to be present in, in the body and take a breath and to notice how you're feeling without necessarily believing that your you know thoughts create feelings, feelings can create behaviors, and becoming aware of that process and learning how to be in your body and not just get tossed by, you know, they say disease, the disease centers in your mind and you've got a mind that's out to get you before it gets some new healthy coping skills on board. You know, I mean, it's difficult when if it's a disease that centers in your mind and you haven't got new skills on board and that's what people do. We listen to ourselves. You know, I mean, there's so many things that we're asking people to read just so often. That's the work that is just to just learn how to be in your body, to take a breath, to not just go self-destruct when things feel. So I know you had said, Rhonda, about how things are in your body and, and, Often people in early recovery have been so disconnected because they've just been completely ingesting things to make sure that they don't feel. And now here they are. Wow. I often say stark raving sober. <laughs> there you are. There you are. Take it in a There you are. <laughs> right. Yeah. And well, also, how do you, how do we teach uh, coming out of that experience the idea that that feelings are are not solid that. Absolutely. You know how do we how do we teach that um, really? So you've de- you know you're you're you've had a whole history of of relying on on that out of body experience as it were. Right. And now, you know that anger has got to be all there is right now. This is it. How how do you teach that? Absolutely. And well, and I think it's always about validating and normalizing initially, and then offering the new. Like, you know, I completely understand that you're really feeling frustrated. And I know, of course, you're feeling anxious and depressed. How would you not? You have, you know, all of a sudden you've given up everything that you've ever known. Your mind, body, and spirit are just coming out of yourself, not knowing whether to lay down or do a cartwheel. You know, you just don't know how to be. And so I'm going to ask you to just take a breath with me to land. Be where your feet are. Be in this moment. Learn. it's such a new concept for for some of us that that just is normal. But for people who have not experienced how to live comfortably in their own skin without using substances, it is a novel concept to learn how to slow down to experience themselves, and that that the experience themselves might not be that bad. It might even be fantastic. <laughs> That's it. We tend to focus on the negative. It's going to be overwhelming. It's going to be yeah. too, too much of this. But let's remember that we can say yes and be positive. Wow, that's that's a. I think that's for all of us a a, a great learning to remember the yes, the positive part. I so, wonder if um, Lisa might want to talk a little bit too about just sort of the phases that folks go through in the treatment program. And again, where sanctuary really kind of introduces an idea, an opportunity. Once once you know, they begin to move through the phases about thinking about what their goals are and beginning to to think more concretely instead of being reactive to everything that life throws at them, but to be more more planful, more mindful, more more moving in the direction that they want to go. Absolutely. You know, we, um, in the first, there are typically three phases in the residential programs where the first phase, you would always have somebody go with you um, to any appointments or to we um, encourage 12-step supports in the community to build um, connections. You know, it, it takes a village. It takes community. What we know is that you need to have new connections as well, you know, not the, the people that they had been using with, but to create safe, sober connections. Um, so they would go through that first phase, and they're going to meet with their counselor initially and want to be immediately thinking about where where are you going to live when you get out of here? Do you have a safe place to live? Have you thought about maybe do you want to go to school? Do you want to, you know, they at least have a conversation. And then as they go to phase two, where they now get a little bit more independence, they don't need a buddy necessarily, they still fill out passes and they we have to be accountable to where they are at all times, but they might actually get a weekend pass to go home if they have a safe place to go home to. They're going to come back and they're going to be drug tested, so there's an external motivator 
you know, to help keep them accountable while they're exercising new recovery muscles, so to speak. They're encouraged to connect with 12-step programs or some sort of a community that's safe, wherever that's going to be, and then really start exploring a little more. What, what am I going to do? Do I, do I need to get a job? Am I going to go to the career center? What, what am I going to do? Um, and then by phase three, they are really, they get a couple hours a day that, you know, they're allowed, they have to sign out. We know where they are, but it's a little more leadway because it's not going to be an artificial environment that they're in forever. They're getting closer and closer to being out there on their own, but they have the safe place to come back to. They know that there's going to be a random drug test. They know there's always somebody to talk to. Um, and yeah. by then, of course, we're going to really hope that they've got secure housing in place. Maybe they've got a job by that point and they're working part-time. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, that reintegration. Mm -hmm. So do people come, I mean, I would imagine there are all different kinds of experiences. I mean, are we, you know, of people who are coming into this program, I mean, are there people who've been, I don't know, professionals uh, in their lives who have been functioning and then have reached a point where that's not working anymore, and people who've just come from, you know, a very... Uh, lifelong experience of of this of a uh, dysfunction that they that that have not been functioning absolutely you know, Add, at, addiction at, does not discriminate uh, you know often you know you old school used to hear all the time that it does not care if you're from Yale or jail that it really absolutely <laughs> does not discriminate so they, we have had professionals who have lost a lot and we have people generationally who have never attained anything yet um, both ends of that spectrum yeah. yeah, I do remember uh, back uh, when I was um, in my training uh, speaking to an individual who was a very, very successful Wall Street person. And yeah, this was in New York. And he would drive in, in into the middle of these incredibly difficult neighborhoods in his Mercedes Benz and, right. to get his heroin. Right. And people would say, no, no, you don't. he's okay because he's, you know, we're just fixing him up. So you don't have to, you know, attack his car and <laughs> don't attack him. And then he would go and be a successful person till he couldn't. So, I mean, that story was, you know, yeah, he was just yeah. on the way to work, you know, just pick up whatever and then, uh, you know, go yeah. make a million dollars or whatever it is, which is so, in equal with his mind. It was not, although he was functioning in a particular way and had different life experience, his addiction was no different in a way. Then, in, in in terms of what was happening in his in his neurology and his physiology, than someone else who perhaps is coming from a homeless situation. Right? You know, although the money makes it different in terms of his resources, I would say in terms absolutely. Of, you know, but the the internal world, right? But the yeah, internal world is is similar. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and so I would just kind of uh, jump in there too and say, you know, Wellspring's mission is to really really serve it as a public organization that's available for folks, for anyone of any um, income means. But primarily, we're here to serve those folks who who don't have um, the high-end insurance or don't have the, um, the means to pay in any other way. So, right. you know, we exist for that. There are many... Um, many higher-end substance use treatment programs available. Uh, the McLean um, program in Camden, for example, jumps out as in a, you know, on the mm -hmm. far side of, of accessibility for those with means, right? Um, and then there's a number of them in between. But we do take anyone, you know, who meets our criteria and, and uh, regardless of income. But pr primarily we're here to serve those folks who don't have means to access other types of treatment. So what, what is the criteria? <coughs> um, well, I can yeah, say for the yeah, residential ahead. treatment, um, mm -hmm. people have to have tried lesser levels of care and not been able to maintain recovery, to, to maintain their sobriety. So typically people who end up in a residential four to six months long have tried a 30-day or they have tried an intensive outpatient or um, they have tried replacement therapy or uh, often they have tried a number of all of those things and not been able to maintain long-term recovery. And so then they would meet criteria for a four to six-month program. 
And then for our outpatient programs, um, both of our IOP programs, intensive outpatient programs, are grant-funded, and so they have specific referral sources. So, for example, we have the contract to provide services for folks who are going through the Penobscot County Drug Court Program, and we're the um, substance use treatment facility for folks in that program. So they're going to be coming um, from the jail or they've had some sort of involvement in the law that has landed them because of their addiction in front of the judge in the, in the drug treatment program. We also have another program called the Maine Enhanced Parenting Project, and that's an also that's a demonstra- national demonstration project um, with federal dollars that really looks at can we work with parents who have substance use disorder and prevent them from further involvement with the child welfare system. Um, so those folks are being referred to us from uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, and they they will have had some involvement or there's some concern about there being further involvement for their children in terms of child welfare. So we're bringing the, those folks in for the intensive outpatient treatment programs. And again, they are going to test out at a level of care that says that it's suitable for them to be in those IOP programs, or perhaps they test out and the recommendation is, is that they go into the residential program. Let me ask you. Uh, I know in the uh, in the is it the Infinity House? Is that the, mm-hmm. the program um, yep. zero to five? Uh, and yep. many of these women, and you know, we're, we haven't talked spoken about the fathers, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, and their absolutely. relationship with their children. Um, but even with the zero to five, um, there there might be other children. And, there might be. And yep. how do we do we have services for the family, or is that a separate? an uh, idea um, or how does how does that whole family system get integrated or not um, out at Infinity House, that's part of the curriculum is to look how to begin integrating family members. And when there's multiple children, I think that because we only have space due to fire marshal regulations to take up to 10 children or um, infants can be with their mothers and in their, you know, in their mother's bedroom, all the children are in their mother's bedroom, but we can't really accommodate um, mobile children beyond six. Sure. So, um, so, you know, they have to find secure places. Um, typically grandmothers, grandfathers are stepping in. But fathers also, we have a number of cases where fathers are the primary caregiver while mom and the infant, for example, may be in treatment. Um, I don't know, Lisa, maybe you could speak to how you folks do it over at the women's house. might be a little different. I'm not sure. Yeah, it typically is the same. We we often have a lot of our, our ladies who have some sort of DHS involvement, and sometimes, you know, they're the children are with dad and they're supporting while mom's, you know, in treatment. Um, often it's grandparents. Uh, we, we see all of that. but um, And we do, both the men's and the women's house has uh, parent partners come in and do a monthly group with um, all, both the men and the women for supporting the parenting because so many of them want desperately to become, as they're bettering their ability to live in their own life, they know they want to show up for their children in a different way. Right. Another another way to uh, to break into uh, <clears throat> to break the pattern or the absolutely. Yeah. And I would say also share that in our intensive outpatient program, the Maine Enhanced Parenting Project, that does not discriminate by um, gender. So men and women, fathers and mothers are involved in that work. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman. Our guests today are Suzanne Farley, Executive Director, and Lisa Williams, Program Director from Wellspring, an agency which provides mental health and addictions counseling and treatment. We uh, we have about oh, about eight minutes left or so, nine minutes left, so I want to uh, make sure we we touch um, anything that you feel that we uh, have missed, or that is there something that uh, that we need to make sure everybody knows about as we uh, as yeah. how can people get a hold of you and all of that sure. kind of thing. So uh, a couple things come to mind is that first of all, I can let folks know and we can repeat it that our website is www.wellspringmain.com, and there's a lot of information on there about how to reach out to us. Also, you can call directly to our admissions number, which is area code uh, 207-941-1600. And uh, 
friendly voices on that answer the phone will help you get to where you need to go we also have a, a really neat event coming up a week from tomorrow and uh, this one will really address the idea about stigma um, reducing stigma is so critical to helping folks get into treatment especially uh, especially for moms with children you can imagine that people can be very judgmental the public can be very judgmental how could you do this to your children? Um, there's any number of kind of refrains that pop up. But for all people experiencing um, the chronic disease of addiction, there is a lot of a stigma attached to how could they how could they get themselves to there and why don't they just quit? And we all know now that it's not that easy. But um, we have a wonderful speaker coming up for a luncheon that we're hosting next week. And again, you can see that on our website. The title of it is Building Bridges to Employment. She's another Wall Street folks person her name is margot walsh she's worked for goldman sachs for many years in wall street uh, she tells a story about um coming from a catholic family that liked to drink wine and she liked wine a little too much and once one thing led to another and um she lost her job uh on wall street she found herself waking up in in jail and you know all of the stuff that folks can relate to who have substance use disorder or chronic disease um, she's going to come up and talk about the business she started in Maine. She's a she's a local gal that was born and raised in Maine, coming home. She started a program called Maine Works, and her whole mission is really to put people back to work who have uh, a felony on their record that's related to a substance use um, violation or you know a drug related charge. And uh, she runs a very successful temp agency that guarantees putting people um, in their agencies who are healthy and strong and ready to work. And she's going to talk about how employers can really think about expanding their horizons to welcome in folks who may have had a felony on their record, who may have had an, ex an experience with substance use disorder, but they're in long-term recovery, and really talk about how folks who are in long-term recovery give so much more back to the community in the long run and that it's really worth investing in them and getting our folks back to work, and especially in this day and age when we have uh, such a high unemployment or you know a low unemployment rate. Mm -hmm. It's hard to find labor. It's hard to find people that get to work. And so this, this talk next week will really talk about how to bridge how to bridge that gap and how to put people back to work and give folks a second chance. So where is that? In, in sure. What? And it's, it's going what to be at the, it's on April 11th, and the luncheon is from 1130 to 130. Folks can go to our website and buy tickets online. Um, we do need ticket sales uh, to be completed by April 9th. Um, Got to give them a count at the, at the facility. Uh, so it's located at the Morgan Hill Event Center. And that address is 82 Morgan Hill Lane in Herman, Maine. And the luncheon goes from 11:30 to 1:30. And we're also having a side raffle that we're, you know, folks affiliated with Wellspring are selling raffle tickets. Oh my! Because okay. we were donated a car, and we're going to raffle oh off my a goodness. car that day. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, folks who are going back to work need wheels, right? So, <laughs> so wow. it's going to be a really exciting, fun day, and uh, we hope a lot of folks will come out especially to hear what Margot has to say. Margo, we also give Margot yeah. Walsh is her name, and uh, she's quite a dynamic speaker. And, and that's she's, Maine Works, and that mm -hmm. seems to really dovetail. Yep. Um, and that's Maine Works. Maine Works is the name of her company. U.S., yeah. I think it's uh, us. Mm -hmm. MainWorks.us is their website. We'll have that mm -hmm. also um, on on the links when we post uh, this conversation that we're, oh, we're having. Fantastic. So um, once again, Wellspring, uh, would you give the that website one more time and the phone number? Yeah, and sure. It's uh, www.wellspringmain.com, and our phone number is area code 207-941-1600. Well, there's just so so many ways, and I think that th that the community can uh, then interact or actually support the work that you're that you're doing. Mm -hmm. When you say, and that's this is one of the ways to if you're an employer, 
you know, mm-hmm. get in touch and see if, if there, uh, mm-hmm. some of the residents who were in, you know, succeeding could uh, be a benefit to your work. Um, Absolutely. So Absolutely. there's just so much that, that we could, uh, we could continue with. Um, I know the other aspect that I, Su- Suzanne Farley, uh, I want to talk to you about as executive director, since you're talking about state funding and mm-hmm. all of that, that, you know, which administration is, is, uh, in power, uh, in, in our state makes such a difference in terms of of these kinds of resources and i guess we would just want to have yeah. people uh keep that in mind as uh as they uh, talk to their representatives and such yeah absolutely um y- you know certainly the other agency did uh the other administration did support us but um not the enough current administration is really right there with us great yeah. so we could continue to be continued we've been talking with suzanne farley executive director and lisa williams program director from wellspring inc an outpatient and residential agency in bangor which provides mental health and addictions counseling and treatment and again we have their website wellspringmaine.com We appreciate your both joining us today on Healthy Options. We will have a link to this program and other information that was mentioned when we post the show on the Public Affairs Archives at weru.org. In the meantime, if you've missed any part of this program or would like to share it, please go to weru.org to find our recent programs on demand. Thanks to John Greenman for engineering, to Petra Hall for production assistance, and as always, thanks to all of our WERU listeners and supporters. This is Rhonda Feynman. I'm wishing you the best in health. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Gracie Theater at Husson University, presenting Black Violin in Concert, with influences ranging from Shostakovich and Bach to Naz and Jay-Z. Black Violin breaks the rules, blending hip-hop, R&B, bluegrass, and classical.